Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. As journalists, we often speak of being fearless and telling the truth to power. But what would you do if you wrote an article and Al-Qaeda called your daughter up and told her they were going to kill you? If you've any sense, you'd get the hell out of there as fast as you could and go to somewhere where the freedom of the press is championed and jealously protected, like Sweden. This is exactly what happened to Hindalayani. But as things stand at the moment, Sweden doesn't want to know. On her arrival here with her daughter, on the run from Al-Qaeda, she was fed into the meat grinder that is the asylum system here, and the results so far haven't exactly been overwhelming. The experience of seeking refuge in Sweden has crushed her spirit, her health, and, she fears, her daughter. And even here the threats continue. Her sister recently received a letter in Arabic stating that Hind would be found and that they would make an example of her. In all of this, her journalism is forgotten. A former UN employee, she chose to leave that organisation to concentrate on being an activist and journalist and a voice for the rights of women and children, not to mention common sense. Can I just start by asking you how you got into journalism? What was it that made you want to be a journalist? Uh, it was by coincidence. I actually graduated from MBA Masters in Business Administration. Mm. Uh, and my uh, bachelor was in computer science, so they have nothing to do <laughs> with journalism. But uh, after the Arab Spring, uh, I started to, uh, I, I used to work with the UN. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I started to write, to, uh, to tweet about things. And um, I used to like writing since I was in school, mm. but I've never thought about becoming a journalist. Uh, so when, when, uh, once I started to write and, um, and talk on TV about Arab Spring, uh, my manager, she told me that I have to choose because you are not allowed to talk about politics if you are working with UN. So she almost fired me. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to, uh, so then uh, suddenly someone contacted me, he told me, we are opening a new website, it's called Now Lebanon. Mm. At that time, I, I was in Lebanon. So um, I worked with them, and then I worked also with BBC. Uh, and I became a journalist, mm. uh, and I loved it so much. I realized that this is what I actually love. Yeah, it's amazing the way that happens that, you know, you have this vocation, this something that you were kind of born to do and you just sort of stumble into it. Did you find it difficult? Did you take any classes? Because you are an academic. I mean, you're a very well-educated person. So did you go and do any sort of degree in journalism or certificate in journalism or did you just go straight in? No, to be honest, I didn't uh, go to take any certifications. Mm. Uh, I was just uh, trained by my manager. Mm. And he is a well-known um, journalist in Lebanon, mm. and that's it. And um, mm. this is what happened. Yeah. In terms of working in the Middle East, in Lebanon, in Yemen, in Turkey, uh, you're now in Sweden. You've travelled all over the world. Is it very difficult for journalists, and especially for women, to work there? In the Middle East, yes, yeah, yeah. very. Um, it's hard if you are talking about women's women's rights. Yeah. 
But if you are uh, talking about politics, they usually feel happy that uh, this woman is uh, with our side. For example, if there is a party that uh, what you are saying uh, is uh, is um, goes with what they want people to understand. Yeah, yeah. They will um, encourage you and support you. Mm-hmm. But once you talk about women's rights, everybody is mad. <laughs> <laughs> so they all agree that they don't they don't like this kind of subjects. They become so scared and um, they attack you. And uh, I can I can um, assure you that talking about women's rights and if you linked it to religion, mm. is uh, the most difficult subject. People, they call me Sheikha Hind. Uh, Sheikha is because I give a Friday speech every... <laughs> so I'm doing what the cleric are doing in the mosque, but I used to do it in my Facebook and Twitter. I used to give them a speech every Friday. I, I stopped, of course, after what happened. Um, Maybe I did it again just once when people was, were asking me, why did you stop? So uh, I used to talk about subjects that I believe are more important than talking about what women should wear and all these things. So I used to talk about um, social things, not politics, uh, about the society, about things like that. So, um, so this is one of the things that used to make them mad that why I'm, I'm acting like um, I'm making myself equal to any of these uh, clerics who are, of course, in their opinion, are better than anybody else. <laughs> and the second thing that uh, uh, things that is uh, in Islam I used to criticize like uh, heritage and not giving the woman as equal as her brother. Um, the money that they give after, for example, if a woman, uh, her father died, she wouldn't take just like hers, her brother. She would, he would take double of what she takes. This is according to Islam. Uh, like also the money that they give to um, uh, dowry or what, what it's called, the money that the woman take when they get married. I was saying that this is like slavery. Uh, and I said that on uh, German TV, Deutsche um, Fede, and uh, there was a cleric, and we were talking about beating the wife, and he was saying it's okay to beat your wife. If it's a slight beating, like just using a toothbrush, because the prophet said that. So I, I told him, um, would you be okay if your wife was beating you? He said, um, uh, he said something. I will send you the video. You can see it. Um, so, so it was like a, um, like it doesn't happen suddenly. It was like uh, accumulated of uh, all what I've been doing. Uh, I've been saying all this time. When you think about the Arab Spring and this sort of democratization and you know people coming out in, on the streets in dictatorships and that kind of thing but that doesn't seem to extend to women and to feminism you know so nationalism is one thing and you know getting rid of dictators is one thing but feminism is still something that you're not really allowed to talk about in the middle east 
Uh, when somebody like you, like you, writes about things like that, what happens then? Is there a platform for you? Because you're on the radio every week, right? Yeah. And do you talk about women's rights on the radio every week? And what happens when you do that? Um, as you know, um, I received threats. Um, uh, people, uh, usually they tell me, uh, just stop talking about this and we will support you. So, um, so it makes everybody uh, mad, even your family. Mm. My family in Yemen, uh, they don't like what I'm saying. And um, some, t some of them, they, they say this, she's, she doesn't belong to the family. Yeah. <laughs> so you lose uh, even friends and family and the society, you feel um, rejected. Um, so uh, it's very few, few I mean, Comparing to the number of Yemenis, the mm. people who will support you are very few mm. because they are so scared that their uh, daughters or their sisters or their wives will uh, will um, uh, will think will uh, will see you as a role model, mm. and um, it's very strange because. Um, when there is a girl, uh, for example, on social media, um, that is maybe, I mean, um, she's uh, putting uh, pictures, but in the, I mean, she's, <laughs> I don't know how to say this. When she, when she sticks out or when she breaks away from the norm. Is that, is but that in a bad way, I mean. Yeah, yeah. I get what, do you mean so, you know, putting out pictures of herself uh, undressed or objects? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They they encourage her, and they because they know their daughters, they will not uh, take her as a role model. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But if the the other uh, image, the woman, the strong woman, independent, uh, from respect family, this is what they don't want because they know that his daughter will ask him why not me why I don't do like this woman so they try to break this image mm. um, and they were so happy after what happened to me they were like oh look what happened to you uh, you kept uh, promoting the secular countries and now um, the secular countries are punishing you mm. um, so they are they they and the, the letter that I received here in Sweden uh, they told me, you you will be. We will make you an exa an, an example mm. to others. Yeah, Sorry. because you sent me a letter last week that was sent to you to your sister anonymously. Because uh, we'll get to your case into why you're in Sweden in a second. But basically, what you're saying to me is that it's okay to take your clothes off on Instagram, but you're not to think and you're not to say as a woman the things that you feel. You're not to go into those things in your journalism and that kind of thing. Um. You wrote an article about a cleric when you were living in Istanbul in Turkey and it changed your life and not for the better. Can you just tell me the details of that again? Uh, why did you write this article? What, what was it that uh, led you to write what you did? There is um, a leader in a political party, a very big political party. It's called Al-Islah. In Yemen? Are, in Yemen. They are um, Muslim Brotherhood. Yeah. And... Um, he has this speech every Friday, so he is. Uh, he has lots of supporters in Taz. And uh, after uh, the incident of um, uh, a girl uh, who is only eight or nine years old, she was raped. Mm -hmm. And his reaction was, "It's 
this happened because of the way that the children are uh, dressing these days. So he was giving like excuses mm -hmm. to. So I got so mad and I wrote that this man should be arrested. And if he is in a country where they respect human rights, uh, they wouldn't allow, allow him to give speeches mm. every Friday. And, uh, and then people got mad about what I said and um, they started uh, attacking me on, on social media. And uh, it was like a big campaign against me. Mm. So you tend to, you always see when you write something controversial that, you know, people just pile in and these accounts on Twitter and Facebook that you've never seen before. And um, then the threats came. No. Um, then I criticized another, another cleric. He is. <laughs> <laughs> you may as well. You know. <laughs> but this, uh, this guy, he is an Al-Qaeda member. Yep. And he's wanted by the USA and mm. he's now in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and I didn't say much about this man, but <laughs> because for them, this is a holy person. You shouldn't yeah, yeah. even come near to him. Yeah. He just said that women who are, um, uh, the ugly women are the ones who are not, uh, are, they are allowed to not wear, uh, to cover their hair because yeah. they are ugly. So I put, I just put my pictures, my picture and I said, I am ugly and proud. Yeah. And then um, Yemen TV. Uh, which actually belongs to totally different sector yep. to Houthis mm. who actually hate this man so much and they bombed his house <laughs> in Yemen yep. <laughs> and they said in the program we disagree with this man and um, but this woman is actually funded by international organizations to ruin the reputation of Islam mm. and which is of course is uh, not true I am uh, I mean, I have, I'm from a Muslim a family mm -hmm. and uh, my mom and sister, they are oh, good Muslims. Mm -hmm. And uh, so after that, um, we received the threats after they put it on TV. It seems there are crazy people who believed that and they just decided to uh, ruin my life. Mm -hmm. You were living in Istanbul in Turkey at that point, right? At that time. Yeah. Um, you had to leave there very quickly when the threats started to come. Could you just explain to me what made you decide that you and your daughter would have to leave? Um, I, I usually don't talk about my daughter at all in social media. Most people don't know that I have a daughter. Mm -hmm. And I was doing that because um, I was so scared that something bad would, would happen to her because of what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we received th those threats on, on phone and on her phone, which almost no, just me and my mom and my sister know about this number, her number. So it was so scary for me that they know her number. They mentioned her school and they told her, uh, we will kill your mom. Mm. And because of that, um, she got so scared. And I didn't let her go to school and we decided that we should go to our family because we were alone in Istanbul. Mm. My mom and sister, they were living in Sweden. Yeah. So I already had this Schengen visa that I used to have every year to attend this conference twice a year. Mm. So I just applied for my daughter's visa from the Swedish embassy and we got it in three days and we left immediately. And you left, you left everything behind you? Everything. My clothes still there till now. Mm. After one year, it's still there. It's still there. 
And you came to Sweden, your mother came here, your sister came here because they sought refuge here as well. Uh, we'll get to the problems that we have in Yemen a little bit as well. But you came here expecting that Stefan Levien's humanitarian superpower was going to look after this woman who was standing up for human rights and for journalism and for freedom of speech. What happened next? Um, actually, um, I was expecting, yes, that they will look into my file and they will, um, they will know that I am someone who needs uh, protection. And everybody was 100 sure that I would be expect, uh, accepted here in yeah. Sweden. Uh, but unfortunately, they didn't uh, see, they didn't open our file or see who we are and what is our story. Mm. And even my daughter, I was expecting that um, uh, they will know her condition and how much she needs to be near the family. And that's why we came to Sweden. Mm. I had the chance to go to another country if my daughter's condition was different. Yeah. I would go to, to many, uh, like to London, to Canada too. Mm. But I couldn't because of my daughter's condition. And her condition is that she was traumatized by these threats. Uh, she stopped going to school, she had problems sleeping, and I've seen her medical journals as well. So this is not something that, you know, you're not playing on sympathy here or trying to pretend that there's something wrong with her. I've seen the reports of the, uh, the child psychologists. So the, the idea then that Sweden has basically said to you that because you have a, a visa for the Czech Republic, that you should go there and seek refuge or seek asylum there with your daughter. But your daughter's doctors have said that that would be hugely detrimental. That would be very bad for her health to go there. Plus, of course, you have your mother and your sister here as well. Um, have you been given any explanation as to why they haven't offered a, a journalist like yourself whose life has been threatened by Al-Qaeda have you been given any explanation as to why they don't want you to, to stay here or why they haven't welcomed you with open arms? They just said um, this is uh, the system and this we are just following the protocol, which is not true. They didn't follow the protocol. Mm. In my case, um, they told Czech Republic that I'm hiding and I'm not hiding just to uh, extend the time limits for the police to uh, deport yeah. me. Uh, they said that I didn't show up three times, which is not true. They um, they called me about, they gave me one missed call about one meeting, which is the one that I missed, just a missed call. And they said, uh, maybe we should have sent you a letter or maybe we should have. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was uh, clear that they just wanted to get rid of us as like, we, we don't want more refugees, just send them to Czech yeah. Republic. I should also say that um, the meeting that you missed uh, with them, I've seen a letter from your daughter's doctor to say that you were in the hospital with her in the emergency room at that time. So the thing that I've seen with your case is that everything on your side is documented and yet there's just some complete silence from the migration board here in Sweden. During this time, you have lived on your own means. You've never taken any money from the Swedish state. Have you been able to practice your journalism? Have you continued to write and to broadcast during this time? Yeah, do, during this uh, year, I, I used to work every day because I'm uh, totally, uh, I mean, independent. Mm -hmm. I, I'm the only one who's responsible for myself. Yeah. So um, I'm still working and I told them I don't need money because I wanted them to understand that um, I only want to, f to be uh, safe and protected in this country. That's mm -hmm. it. 
I, I don't want to take anybody's taxes. Yeah. Um, and my pride for me is something very important. Yeah. Um, uh, but unfortunately, I feel now that uh, my pride is totally destroyed and I feel um, I feel like, I mean, many people, they are telling me, why you are still there? Just leave this country. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to go through this. But I can't because of my daughter's condition. This yeah. is the only reason that I'm still here, mm. despite all the humiliation and the way that we were uh, being treated in this country. I, do, I feel like I'm being punished. Yeah for being outspoken, for uh, for being with women's rights, child child rights, and for doing all this, it's like, it's so unfair. It's amazing, all these things that Sweden says that it's out there defending in the world, you know, this nation of 10 million people speaking up for feminism and speaking up for children and speaking up for peace. And then all of a sudden somebody like you comes along and, you know, you, they give you the cold shoulder. But you were invited, we're talking now at uh, the, the middle of December, and you were actually invited to the, uh, the Yemeni peace talks that were held here in Sweden, uh, which I find amazing. What, what happened there? You were part of a, a group talking about the effect of, of the, the conflict on women and how it could be solved. Is that right? Uh, yeah, we had um, a session that was organized by UN Women and other organizations. Uh, it was about um, mainly about we uh, we wanted uh, the voice of the um, civil society, mm-hmm. and uh, we were talking. And for me, I was talking about um, that the need of having more women in the on the table mm-hmm. because there is only one woman on the UN recognized government. Ah, okay, yeah. Uh, so it is so, um, because um, um, according to the uh, to the output of the national dialogue, there sh- it should be uh, 30% of women mm-hmm. participating, but uh, they didn't want the delegations, they refused, and um, just one woman, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's very weird, it's not acceptable. And, um, the voice of the people who are suffering from this war is not there. Mm. Only the people who are actually gaining from this war, who wants it to continue. Mm. So um, peace uh, will not be possible as long as the voices of, of those who want peace are actually not there. I, even the women who are, in, um, who are supporting, I mean, they have really great women. I mean, both delegations. Yeah. And these women, they have, um, uh, they are more reasonable. I mean, they care, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they care more yeah. about uh, about how to um, how to save the country and how to protect their families yeah. and how to. But they are not there to to put their opinion and to uh, push and put more pressure on them. Unfortunately. Um, so, so yeah, um, even when I went there, yeah, the, the atmosphere was um, better than yeah. usually. <laughs> this time it was really, um, they were shaking hands and, uh, um, but they didn't talk about the things that people are more concerned about, like the salaries, because in Yemen, 
especially in the north, uh, it's been almost two years without salaries. Yeah, so nobody's working there. There's no money being paid out to anybody. No, they had to to find another jobs like um, selling ice cream or uh, if they could. But I mean, those who works with the government, mm -hmm. I mean, um, public sectors, they don't have salaries. Yeah. So the middle class people, they are now getting more poor mm -hmm. and that's uh, very sad. This podcast, like all my journalism on Patreon, is supported by you, the listener, the viewer, the reader. If you can, please support my work from as little as $2 a month. If you can't, that's fine. Everything is still free. But please do me a favour and subscribe to the podcast, leave a positive review, and amplify it where you can, especially in social media, so that others get to hear it. The whole point of it is to make us all more enlightened media consumers and to highlight stories that otherwise would not see the light of day. So to support it, go to patreon.com forward slash man in Stockholm and you'll find all the information there. Thank you. The first time I heard about this conflict was in 2015 and it took me a long time to even begin to understand what was happening in Yemen. So in Yemen at the moment it's basically a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia are sort of pulling the country apart. Could you just explain how it started and how the country is divided for people who might not understand? Um. The conflict in Yemen is uh, complicated because it has a history of conflicts. Mm -hmm. um, there is Houthis who actually wants to rule Yemen uh -huh, again mm -hmm. because they, uh, I mean, their family or uh, they believe that they belong to Prophet Muhammad and that they should uh, rule the country, mm -hmm. that it's religion um, background, religious background. Um, and they used to rule Yemen uh, before 1962, mm -hmm. and then the revolution happened, and uh, now they wanted they want to come back. Uh, so it has this history. At the same time, Iran and Saudi are using uh, this history of conflicts to um, have more power in Yemen, more um, to control. Uh, to fight each other, yeah. but uh, using uh, Yemenis and uh, mm. and there are Yemenis are giving them this chance. Yeah. Uh, I don't deny that. Uh, so every 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 um, every group has um, this country that is giving them the uh, supporting them with weapons and uh, mm. money. So the, uh, that's why it's hard to stop this war because they are both gaining money and power. Mm. Um, and the Houthis are supported by Iran. Yeah, I, I, I am pretty sure about it. I was in Beirut and I saw how Hezbollah mm. um, was training Houthis in, uh, in Beirut. Yeah. Uh, at that time, I wrote about this when it was still at the beginning. Yeah. And I used to say we don't want um, we don't want our country to be um, the land of this proxy war like in in Lebanon. Mm. Um, but unfortunately, it happened today. So um, so now yeah so now the it's a proxy war with a history of conflicts. Uh, people who are scared that Houthis are going to have more power in Yemen and. Uh, to be the only powerful group in mm. Yemen, they are scared that they will lose democracy. And but supporting Saudi is not going to give us democracy. And uh, no, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to understand that as well. Yeah. 
so we don't want any of them, mm. uh, especially for me. I believe in secular country. So mm. both have religious background. Both are religious country. I mean, mm. they are fighting according to uh, to religious uh, mind. Yeah. So yeah. So I hope that they will reach a peace. Um, a peace uh, agreement and then we, we we will be able i mean those who are who believes in democracy and civil civil uh, country civil states they will be able to um, with the help of the international community yeah. to uh, to um, to form a government that is not uh, that doesn't have to do with these two countries yeah it doesn't have to be Shia or Sunni, it's exactly. just a, a Yemeni government. All Yemenis yeah. should be included, mm-hmm. um, including Houthis, mm-hmm. of course. Uh, but they should understand that um, Yemen is for all of us. Mm-hmm. Nobody should be above anybody just because of any that he has to do with any family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Hunger is a great weapon of war in this conflict. There's 8 million people in Yemen who are at risk of of starvation at the moment. Why is that? Why is food not getting into the country? Why is food not being produced there? it's uh, there is uh, there are many reasons for this. Um, there are places where there is the conf- the places where uh, they are surrounded by um, clashes, and mm-hmm. so the the organizations they cannot reach them the uh, UN or they cannot reach to help them. That's why they they are starving, mm-hmm. and um, also the reason of not having the salary. There is there are food. For example, yeah. in the capital Sanaa, but there are people starving because they cannot buy these foods. They have no money. Yeah. They don't have money, uh, and um, it's sad because um, in Yemen, it used this country. People used to help each other, mm-hmm. but they are getting more poor and poor, and, and this makes them everybody would just want to save himself yeah. or herself. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, you know the the, um, the Saudi they are punishing uh, the North for uh, for not fighting Houthis by uh, by this by cutting the salaries because not such sal- people in the no- uh, South they still have their salaries yeah uh, and uh, this is not helping I mean it doesn't make people hate Houthis and fight them it just make them starving yeah. So a, there's no constructive aspect and to it. And actually it works against them. Now the whole world, uh, after Khashoggi, after the murder of Khashoggi, yeah. the whole world is, uh, is talking about Yemen finally, yeah. after four years. It was actually Jamal Khashoggi who was murdered in Turkey uh, in the Saudi embassy there. That was one of those things that started to shine a light on it. But the problem for, for the international viewer or reader or listener is that it's quite complicated, but you've summed it up really well there. Uh, could I ask you about your own future where what do you see happening now do you expect that you'll be allowed to stay in sweden and what what does this mean for your journalism what do you want to be writing about or talking about now um i'm hoping i'm hoping to stay because um uh, because as you know my priority is my daughter Mm -hmm. i want her to feel safe and stable and be able to continue her life normally, like just like any kid. And for me, I had um, I had this ambition, ambition, 
to um, to form an organization. Uh, and because of my experience that uh, as a refugee, uh, I understood many things. I, I think if I didn't go through this experience, mm. maybe I would be one of those people who would say, oh, we don't want more refugees or refugees are spoiled. Or yeah, yeah, they get everything for nothing, <laughs> this kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't know the suffering that they go through. Mm. So now I want to, uh, I am dreaming about having this organization that is, um, uh, it helps uh, the newcomers to understand the society. At the same time, um, I'm so sorry for that. No problem. Uh, at the same time, it's, um, it also if, uh, helps people, um, with, uh, help, help the refugees if they are in bad conditions. I mean, I wonder now how many people were in my position, but they couldn't talk. Mm. I'm a journalist, I was able to talk and I was able, my voice is heard. Yeah. But I wonder how many people they cannot do anything about. Um, yeah. So will your journalism in the future, will it concentrate on people like yourself who have left, on refugees, on what they face in their new countries? Or do you still expect to, to be looking at the Middle East and explaining that to people? Uh, I will, I will, of course, uh, keep doing what I'm doing. I mean, in journalism, mm. but also I will have uh, this organization. Mm. So both. And in ten years' time, where <laughs> is Yemen and where is Hind Alayani? Uh, I never plan anything. I mean, I know you will be surprised. <laughs> it's impossible as a journalist to plan anything. Believe me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you haven't looked that far ahead. I no, never thought what I'm going because you know, <laughs> just. Uh, five uh, how i mean eight years ago or something i was totally different person yeah. so i don't know what i'm gonna be after 10 years i i have no idea well having looked at an awful lot of your work and having been part of the case for so long i hope you stick with journalism because you've helped me to understand an awful <laughs> lot better what's happening in yemen and for even for as long as i've worked with refugees i still got a much deeper insight because of the fact that you have spoken to me thank you very much for talking to me <laughs> thank you the first time I heard Hind's story, I wish I could say I was surprised, but I wasn't. Europe, and Sweden in particular, suffers from an enormously deceitful conceit. Namely, that while other nations around the globe are criminals and savages, that they are somehow a refined class of human rights defenders, all done while listening to Ode to Joy. But saving face is apparently more important than saving lives. Sweden still deports young men and women to war-torn countries in which they have nothing. No money, no network no future. Anyone seeking asylum is put into a legal straitjacket, and any attempt to deviate from the arbitrary path laid out is punished severely. If Sweden does deport Hindalayani, then my last scrap of faith in this system here will be gone. The only difference between the state and Al-Qaeda, who have said they will kill her, is the cut of their suits. It may not be as bad as holding the knife themselves, but lacking the courage to protect those in need, and indeed sending them out into danger, is just about as low as it gets. Journalism needs women like Hindalayani, and when they have nowhere left to run, action needs to be taken. Go safely, my friends, and be sure that I will keep you up to date with what happens in this case.